Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. On today's show, part two of our big picture economic discussion with Dr. Mohammed El Aryan. He's the chief economic advisor at Allianz and the former chair of President Obama's Global Development Council. What I do know is that the world we're on every day is becoming less and less secure and that we are seeing all these improbables and unthinkables become reality. And when that happens, it's not noise. It's the system giving you a signal that we are about to have a major transition. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast, sponsored by Betterment, the smarter way to invest your money. I'm so excited to bring you part two of my conversation with Mohammed El Aryan. It's great that we can actually have friends of the podcast who are willing to stay chained to the desk for hours upon hours on end so that we can give you two fabulous episodes. This week with Mohammed El Aryan, we're able to talk about some of the real critical issues facing the global economy. In Mohammed's view, there are two pretty stark possibilities for the U.S. economy. He's going to describe those. We'll touch on Brexit, Grexit, all the other exits. These are pretty high-level concepts that Mohammed's discussing. But if you've got a financial question that's a little more micro than macro about your life, don't forget we have a little time for you at the end of every program. The Listener call of the week right after the interview with Muhammad. Stay tuned. And, you know, you have two chances to get on the air with us. Every Tuesday, we do the better off bonus call of the week. If you'd like to get on the air, send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Before we get to the interview, just a quick favor. Could you hop on to betteroffpodcast.com and take our survey? Fill it out. Gives us a better understanding of what you want, what you don't want. So betteroffpodcast.com or look for a link in the show notes. And now our interview with Mohammed. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. What keeps you up at night? Economists tend to be, you know, dismal scientists, right? You, you're a worry wart. You've also been an asset manager. So you look at the downside. What worries you right now about where we are? What worries me is that we're going to stumble into a bad outcome and then create this vicious cycle of bad politics contaminating economics and then bad economics contaminating politics. And these are cycles that we've seen in the emerging world that are very hard to break. So what I worry most is the inadvertent stumble into a vicious cycle that cannot be broken easily. What happens in Brexit? Give me the best case and the worst case right now. So I think it's important that while people have been arguing about hard Brexit versus soft Brexit, which means does the UK rupture completely its relations with the EU or does it transition to something soft, what we've really had is slow Brexit. And that has been a very important political call. The British establishment first was completely surprised by the outcome and then got back on site quickly. And what they realized is a fundamental thing, that you cannot replace something with nothing. So instead of rushing into Brexit the day after the referendum at the end of June, they slowed everything down. And they slowed it down in order to avoid disruptions. And I expect it's going to take a long time. It will take up to the two years that's allowed under the article. Here's what I don't get about it. If the fundamental issue really was around immigration, if if you polled most people about why they said, I'm voting to leave, it seemed to me that immigration kept coming up. And yet, if the EU's sort of general premise is free flow of people, 
How are those two things reconciled? So the, the general premise is free flow of goods, services, and people. Yeah. And then there are two very different visions as to why that makes sense. The pure European vision that you feel in Germany, you feel in the core of Europe, is that this is a means to another end. And that is the ever closer union. And the ever closer union is just not economic. It's economic, it's social, it's political. It's something very, very deep. And it does help prevent wars. And that is why it's such an important vision. In the UK, however, it was never about the ever closer union. It was simply about a free trade arrangement. Mm. So the free flow of goods and services is an end in itself. So for them, of course, you can take the people side out of it, just keep the goods and services. But for the rest of Europe, they all come together. And that is what they're going to have to resolve over the next two years. That's so interesting. Okay. So we don't know what's going to happen. The British economy did not fall apart. There is going to be an exodus of people. And there is a lot of chatter out of the European Union that, hey, you know what? Uh, You're going to have to move a lot of people out of there. What effect will that have on London's ability to be uh, the epicenter on the, you know, sort of across the ocean of banking and finance? So a lot depends on, on what comes out of this negotiation, Jill. If we were living in a rational world, and, and rational world means you put aside hurt ego, you put aside all sorts of emotional elements, and you just ask the question, what's rational? And you are very analytical. Both sides will realize that a soft Brexit is in the interest of both sides. And I think you can do it in such a way that it doesn't create a huge precedent. But I said, if, I assumed rationality. Um, and that's the big question is whether you will get rationality. Although it, Theresa May seems fairly rational, sort of almost like in that I'm a technician as opposed to an ideologue. Yeah. And, and for her, of course, what she wants is, soft, is a soft Brexit at the end of the day, as long as she doesn't have to pay too much for it. Mm. And there's going to be a question mark as to what the exit bill is uh, for the UK. Europe is in the middle of their own anti-establishment movements. So they've got to find a way to accommodate what the UK wants without inadvertently fueling more exit pressure. So they've got to be really careful on, on how they do that. And this is where political leadership is going to be really tested. Talk to me a little bit about Greece. Do I have to worry about it again? You certainly have to worry about the people. Um, it's tragic, Jill. It's mm. absolutely tragic what's happening to Greece. And youth unemployment is still 50%. And I worry a lot about that because the system produces every year school leavers. So if you left school three years ago, four years ago, and you haven't gotten a job, the system produces every year people that are more attractive to the employers than you because the employers don't have to ask the question, what have you been doing for the last three years? So you risk, if you're young and unemployed, going from being unemployed to unemployable. And the minute you say that, you risk a lost generation. And that is a tragedy. And it really, really pains me to see that Europe can't get together and provide what what Greece needs, which is debt reduction, to allow the country to get back on its feet. And when we look at Greece, is that a possibility that the currency stays together, but they sort of push Greece out and say, okay, we're done with this? I mean, does that experiment end soon? So at the end of the day, there's two choices 
available. And they are what they call corner solutions because they're extreme, but that's where the system is going. One choice is to acknowledge that Greece has to be helped and to keep it within the Eurozone, but to proceed on what's called fiscal integration, which basically says transfer more money and forgive more debt. The other is to say Greece doesn't belong in the Eurozone, should have never been in the Eurozone to begin with, and let's pull the Band-Aid off and let Greece regain control of its currency policy and of its monetary policy. And that is a choice that has to be made. So far, they've been pushing back that, that decision over and over again. That leaves them in purgatory. It's just ridiculous. It leaves the Greek people in purgatory. Right. And, that, and that's, that's the big concern. I mean, the numbers of, of, on poverty are absolutely frightening. So let's move back to the U.S. for a second. We're at the T-junction, the famous El Arian T-junction. You get to the end of the street, you can go left, you can go right. It's a T. On one end, there is low growth, high employment, unemployment, increasing income inequality, political extremism. So we're right in the middle of this. We're going to figure it out. On the other side, there's higher growth. There's some job creation. Income inequality starts to decrease. The fear about financial instability also it decreases. When we spoke uh, a year ago about your book, shameless plug for the book coming up, The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse, you said that you thought there was about a 50-50 chance that we go one way or the other. And a year later, I'm wondering how you believe the U.S. is going to tilt. You can revise your odds and you can even come back anytime and revise them again. So I think the odds are still pretty balanced. Um, And it ultimately comes down to a political judgment. We've had what's called an endogenous, an internal catalytic shock to the U.S. political system in the election of Donald Trump. Now, there's two outcomes to that. One is that that serves as a catalyst for better economic governance. And as I said earlier, Since 2010, Congress has been so divided that it has virtually done nothing. We went six years, Jill, six years without a formal budget approval. Everybody knows listening to this podcast that budgeting is the most basic element of economic governance. And with the exception of one mid-year budget deal, we haven't been able to come together on on such a basic element. So there's one possibility that, that... the election of President Trump is a catalytic role. There's another possibility that it fragments the Republican Party and we can't get anything done at all. And then we, we really do slip and take the, the bad turn. I think right now, certainly I don't have the political judgment to say with conviction and foundation is going to be this or that. But what I do know is that the road we're on every day is becoming less and less secure and that we are seeing all these improbables and unthinkables become reality. And when that happens, it's not noise. It's the system giving you a signal that we are about to have a major transition. Oh, God. My stomach just hurt when you said that. Okay. Uh, Gary Cohn, Wilbur Ross, Steve Mnuchin. You know these guys, some of them. You don't have to tell me personally. It appears that those choices in the Trump administration may be the absolute sanest choices outside of some of the military guys. Do you have confidence that they understand the things that you're laying out? I mean, obviously, these are not stupid men. 
Yeah, first of all, these are people who understand the issues. If you want to be positive, they also have identified key elements that are needed, and that's why you hear a lot about infrastructure, deregulation, tax reform. They're also less keen on protectionism, on trade protectionism. And the markets have given them the benefit of the doubt by pricing in higher growth. So, yes, that's why there's reason to be optimistic. The problem is that it's not enough to announce what you're going to do. You've got to design it. Mm. And design is tricky when there are political trade-offs. And then you've got to implement it. And that's going to be the key issue is transitioning from announcing to design and implementing. We have not talked about the rest of the world at all. Just give me a quick rundown of some other fissure points. What's going on in China? I'm not worried about a hard landing anymore. They're, they're slowing down. It's not going to be as fast. But what's going on in China? So China short term is soft landing and it's managing the most difficult transition. So if you're a development economist, which means that you follow countries through their life cycle, the most difficult transition is to go from middle income to high income. I call it going from being a teenager to being an adult. Things change and you gotta behave differently. Only five countries have managed that transition in the last 50 years and none have been as complicated as China. Now, the good news is that China learns very quickly. And yes, there are bumps along the way, but if you are to see how they've been navigating this, they've been doing it rather well. So I'm not worried about the overall transition of China, but it will be bumpy. I think if you want to worry, you worry about Japan and Europe. Mm. Because there, the economic policy management is yet to catch up with reality. Still in Japan? Still in Japan. Still in Japan. If we had met, and I would have told you, Japan is the one country that's going to have a popular leader, a prime minister with very high popularity and full control of parliament, do you think that they can get through things that they know they need to do? And the answer will be yes, but it turns out they can't. They called it the three arrows, that they need three different action and have not been able to fire the most important arrow, which is structural reforms, changing the way things are done in the economy. And that is, like, huge for them because it's been going on for 25 years, essentially. Correct. So they've had two lost decades, and yet they can't take on vested interest. What do you think about Modi in India? And and are you um, optimistic? I've talked to some economists who feel like that's actually the place where we should be most optimistic because there's not because it's not a hot mess, which it always is, but because there's great potential. I think that is the right answer. Again, it was an improbable election outcome. Again, it's a disruption from within the system. And you see India finally unleashing um, its considerable growth potential. I think of the global economy as being a class, and you are the principal. So you're the teacher, and you come in, and the principal says, you know what, Jill, I have good news for you. You say, what, it is, what is it? I said, the class, on average, is better off. And you say, wow, that's good news, because a better off class is one that is more eager to engage and learn. And then I say to you, and I have even better news, that some pretty good students that can pull the class even more. There's India, there's the US that has massive potential. And you say, that's great. And I say, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. I knew you were about to say, but. Yeah, but 
it's a much more diverse class. It's much more dispersed in terms of ability. And you have some troublemakers in the back. You have Russia in the back. You have Venezuela in the back. You can't even predict what they're going to do. And you have other places that used to be good students like Europe and Japan whose grades have been going down and not doing anything about it. And suddenly you think, wow, that's not going to be an easy year for me mm. because I have to manage to a much wider spectrum of students. And that's what the global economy looks like in 2017 and 2018. I feel like there has been a consistent drum that you've been banging around this, which is, you know, there are a lot of problems in the world, but you remain optimistic. Why is it that you remain optimistic? There are three things, I think. One is that the engineering solution is known, and that is a major plus. Second, we are living through a very exciting time where the combination of artificial intelligence, big data, and mobility is empowering individuals in a way that we've never seen before. And it's enabling us to do things in a way that was unthinkable. And I see this with the younger generation. Third, I just see exceptional people doing exceptional things, and and they give me hope. Um, So there are reasons to be optimistic, but not complacent. And that's the the difference I mean. It's the complacency of the political system that worries me the most. Do you miss managing money on a day-to-day basis? What I miss most, especially at PIMCO, is the interaction with really smart colleagues. The people at PIMCO are some of the very smartest I've ever come across. And just sitting with them and listening to them and interacting with makes you a better person. So what I miss most is the interactions with really smart, serious, committed colleagues who leave their egos at the door and go in and and, and try to solve difficult issues. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Mohammed El Aryan in just a second. When Mohammed talks about the disruptive students in the class, it made me laugh because I think, oh, you know what? We kind of have those disruptive students in our own personal financial lives. The problem is that we are those students. It's interesting to consider that, you know, of course, a lot of financial and economic issues are incredibly complex, but often what trips us up is emotional. So maybe you want to know how you can be a little bit better behaved in your financial life. Maybe you want to know that you'll be able to retire on time, that you'll have the life that you want ahead of you. Well, you know what? Our sponsor, Betterment, believes that they can help you out. Betterment has technology that helps you plan for the future and manage your investments intelligently with special attention paid to lowering fees and minimizing taxes. Betterment checks all the boxes, globally diversified portfolio, and maybe you don't even know that some of the things you do are tax inefficient. Well, Betterment has tax efficient features, award-winning customer service, and guess what? Betterment is a fiduciary. And now, for those who may have more complex finances or just want someone to talk to, Betterment offers two additional service plans that give you access to a team of CFP professionals like me, CFP, and licensed financial experts. You don't have to waste your time and money planning for the future. Sign up through our podcast link and you can get one month managed free. Visit Betterment.com slash off for the offer and more information. And now back to our interview with Mohammed El Aryan. You know, there's some openings in the Federal Reserve Board. So I'm just wondering if you got a call from Gary Cohn or from Steve Mnuchin and they said, uh, 
you know what, we know that you're associated with the other administration, but we think you're, we're putting your name in for as, as a Fed board member. Would you be interested in that job? So I don't think that call is going to come. I understand, but I'm right? just giving you the fantasy it, land. Yeah, I mean, the fantasy land is, is policy has always been very close to my heart. Um, and it's something that I find particularly interesting, particularly um, central banks right now, because they've been the only game in town for a long time. And the problem of being the only game in town is that if you are in it for too long, you risk going from being part of the solution to being part of the problem. So this is this is a serious transition coming up and one that has to be managed well for future generations. Give Janet Yellen a grade. Uh, uh, let's give let's do a few grades. Alan Greenspan, give him a grade as Federal Reserve Chair. So I think all of them, and I'm going to. Oh, gonna, you're such a punter! I can't believe it. No, I'm not it. a punter. I th- I think that that they have all done exceptionally well given what they knew at the time. What I do, what I do think that the Fed and other central banks have to realize is they need more of the outside view. Mm. Um, does they, that mean non-economists, or does that mean just other people outside of Harvard, Yale, Princeton, academia? So you know, Jill, that I'm a great believer in cognitive diversity. That to understand the world, you need a diversity of views. You do not get that diversity of views unless you have diversity among gender among race, among sexual orientation, among experience, among education. So yes, beyond economics, but it speaks to to a bigger issue that I think the government is slow in realizing, which is cognitive diversity is really important to good decision making. Oh, I love that. Um, I'll give the grades. I say Greenspan gets a C. I say Bernanke gets an A minus and Yellen gets a B plus. So Greenspan made a bet that very few people wanted to make. Um, early on, which is that productivity would take off. He understood that globalization was a positive productivity shock. Yes. And he let it run. Okay. And that 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 was a really hard call. I, I, remember, I was at the IMF at the time, and I remember that with few exceptions, Stanley Fisher, the vice chair right now being one of these exceptions, most people didn't believe that you would unleash this massive positive productivity shock. Greenspan bet on it. And, and and he was right. So so I would say to you, you know what? If you look at his whole term, mm. you're being harsh. Okay. That rescues him from giving him an F. Like that first part of his term, because later in his term, he's ridiculous. So we as a society <laughs> fell in love with the wrong growth model. Right. Okay. But it's the whole society, not just him. Okay. But he's supposed to be the adult in the room. But this was a massive romance okay. with finance. I, I remember there was a time when we called it the financial service industry. Yeah. There was no doubt that it was there to serve the real economy. 12, 15 years ago, we changed it to finance. I remember very serious people talking about finance being the next level of capitalism. You went agricultural, industry, manufacturing, services, and if you're really lucky, you get to finance. And then, and then, well, if finance is that special, why regulate it? Ugh. Right? So, so he was part of this whole generational romance with something that proved to be wrong. Aren't you so much happier that Bernanke was there during the crisis rather than Greenspan? So I think we were extremely lucky to have someone that had studied the Great Depression and that understood early on that finance, once it stops working properly, can bring down the global economy. We came so close to a global depression that would have lasted for years. 
very, very close. I know. People don't feel lucky. I feel lucky to have dodged that bullet. I really do. And I certainly thank Paulson and Bernanke and the former President Bush and President Obama and his team because they, I think, were convinced quickly that this is not like anything you've seen. This is not the 80s. This is not. This is a real crisis. So the good news is they, they understood very quickly that we were having what's called a sudden stop a heart attack, and that if you don't do things dramatically, the patient would be hampered for a long time. But what they didn't understand is that this was a structural shock, not a cyclical shock. Mm. We still had the mindset that this was one big cycle. It was a rubber band, an elastic band, that it will come back. And I remember in 2009, when my PIMCO colleague and I came up with this notion of the new normal, and we went to sell it in Washington as... This is a structural and secular shock, not a cyclical shock. It was called idiotic to begin with. Why? Because the mindset was dominated by we live in cyclical space, not structural space. And it took three to four years for that mindset to adjust. And part of it was the lack of cognitive diversity. You did not have enough people in the administration who had studied the experience of developing countries who go through structural shocks. And therefore, the mindset became hostage to, oh, this is just a cyclical shock. And by the time we realized, the political window had closed. When we started the interview, we talked about your best money decision. Now you're going to share with us, you, brilliant economist, asset manager, writer, author, speaker, what's your worst money decision that you ever made? Being too cautious, I think, would be my worst um, money decision. Um, I didn't trust, for example, the, that central banks could deliver not just a way out of a really bad economy, but they could deliver financial outperformance for such a long time. I just did believe that they would commit so much of their balance sheet to supporting markets. So if you had believed it and you basically said, let me take my entire net worth and throw it into the S&P 500 index, that would have been phenomenal, but that would have been insane. So how could you have executed that belief? I don't think anybody should throw everything (laughs) into anything, but I would have thrown a lot more into it. Yeah. I would have thrown a lot more into it. I was very cautious thinking that the fundamentals ultimately is what dictates returns and that central banks could not decouple the stock market from the fundamentals. And I was wrong. They did, and they did for a very long time using aggressively their own balance sheet. Mohamed Al-Aryan is the author of The Only Game in Town, Central Bank's Instability and Avoiding the Next Collapse. It's out in paperback next month. You should all get it. I'll tell you why. Because it's very easy to read. And when you look back now, I think that there is enough distance where people can start to really take in this idea that we were on the verge of a collapse. You do an excellent job of that. But also, I love the prescriptive ideas around, hey, we're not stuck here. There are ways to get out and that we all need to embrace those. And we need to embrace three things, which is resilience, agility, and what I call optionality. So on the first one, you need enough resilience as an investor, as someone who's working, as, as a parent, to make sure that you can absorb the bumps along the way because it's going to get more bumpy. You need agility because you're going to have opportunities that come up. And finally, you need optionality. You need to be able to take in the latest information as we get closer and closer to the neck of the T-junction. 
that T-junction scares the living daylights out of me. I tell you, I wake up worried about the T-junction. We're there. We're, we're approaching it. We just haven't made our turn yet. Mohammed El Aryan, thank you so much for joining us. It's a great pleasure. Thank you, Jill. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, it's time for our favorite part of the show. It's your listener questions. Remember, if you have a financial question, maybe it's about your taxes, maybe it's about your investments, maybe it's about college funding, just send us an email. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com. Ask Jill at betteroffpodcast.com and we will arrange to get you on the air. Today, we've got Peter. He's uh, on the road in California. Hi, Peter. Welcome to Better Off. What can I do for you? Hi, Jill. Thanks for having me. Sure. Um, My quick question for you is, uh, I just started uh, a sole proprietorship. I do some consulting on the side, and I think I'm going to probably gross income probably around $5,000. Okay. Uh, my question for you is about the SEP IRA. I've been looking into some retirement for self-employed individuals, and I wanted to see how much I could put in the SEP IRA. I've been doing some research, but it, it, there's just so much, uh, you know, different information out there, and I'm a new business owner. And so I just wanted to ask you and see if you had any information for me that I could use uh, to ensure that I'm doing it correctly. Got it. Um, and and do you also have a, a full-time job because you said that you just opened a, I think you said a side business. So do, are you fully yeah. employed? Yeah, I'm fully employed and um, I am part of a uh, the state government, so I do get a defined benefit plan, and I do do my Roth IRA every year. Um, but I thought that you know, with the side business, I could save a little more for retirement. Are you maxing out your retirement plan through work, and are you also maxing out your Roth? Yes. So um, my my the state doesn't you know do a defined. Well, we do have a defined contribution, but they don't match. Basically. We have to pay, um, I think it's 8 or 9% per month uh, for our defined benefit plan. So okay. that's what I'm doing now. And for my Roth IRA, yes, I am maxing out every year uh, since I started working. So I have been doing that, too. Okay. Two things that come to mind before, and I'll get into the SEP in one second. You know, I'm intrigued to kind of look at that. Maybe you should be using the defined contribution plan, presuming that Uh even even without a match, it really depends where the plan is held. I don't know if it's with some big, expensive, you know, 457 plan with the the investment choices, probably, you know, 2 percent or something, or whether there's a bunch of index funds that are really cheap. But if you've got a cheap plan, it might be easy for you to start putting some money away that way. As far as the the SEP IRA, it's a little bit of a weird formula, so stay with me here. For 2017, so you didn't make, did you make money last year in 2016? No, I did not. Okay, so for 2017, here's how the limits work. You can put 25% away of your compensation up to $270,000 for you you don't have to worry about that because you just said you got made five grand, right? 
But maybe, hey, listen, maybe the side business is going to grow and you're going to have, you know, $300,000 a year. We don't know. But there's a maximum annual contribution limit of $54,000. That's kind of the the deal on the SEP. It, It may be more than you need. It may be not that it's so impossible to to do this, but I guess what I'm wondering is if you have a cheap defined contribution plan and you start using it, is that just a much easier and more efficient way for you to invest? So what would be great is if we could follow up or you could follow up with us and just let us know, hey, this is what my defined contribution plan looks like. Should I do this or should I start looking at the SEP? But that's really going to be the choice. And the SEP tends to be really good if you're making, you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars a year. You can put money away. It's great. So I think that both of these things are really worth looking at. And especially if your side business starts to grow pretty dramatically, the SEP can be fantastic. Okay, sounds good. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks for calling. Take care. Good luck. Okay, that's it. The end of the second part of the interview with Mohammed El Arian. If you missed the first one, just hop onto our website, betteroffpodcast.com, and there you can check out the first one. And if you miss any other programs, they're all there as well. Don't forget, we've got our bonus episode that comes out on Tuesdays and the longer form every single Thursday. You can subscribe via iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or suggestions, you can find me on Twitter. My handle is at Jill on Money. That's at Jill on Money. Just use the hashtag BetterOff. You can also reach me via email. Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. That's Ask Jill at BetterOffPodcast.com. And if you wouldn't mind, please leave us a review or a rating in iTunes. It really will help us out. BetterOff is sponsored by Betterment. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. Mark Delercio produces. I'm Jill Schlesinger. See you next week.